Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen, and with me again this week is the frequent and frequent guest host, Ted <laughs> Haycraft. Story of my life. Uh, frequent and frequent. Yeah. So. <laughs> but uh, to, on today's episode, we're talking to author Robert Knott about uh, his book, The Films of Bud Bedecker. The uh, I don't know how you want to describe him, Ted, because like I don't want to do disservice to all the other directors from Evansville, Indiana, but I think by a country mile, he is the most successful director from Evansville. The only one that I think has worked consistently with multiple movies in the studio system, the most critically acclaimed director from Evansville, which to be fair, is a very small well, when you, club yeah, does, I mean, successful, that's, you know, that's debatable. On, I'm not sure his box office where that stands. But yeah, in terms of critical assessment, what we're going to, what we're going to see basically with Buttaker uh, is there's his six films that he did with Randolph Scott that the critics uh, worldwide just go crazy over. And we want to really, hopefully, spotlight, not just Buttaker overall, but these six films are just so well worth checking out if you're a true cinema fan. Okay, well, let's talk. We'll talk more in our intro a little more about Babetiker. But uh, first off, what did you watch anything cool this week? Yeah, I watched. Uh, I watched a fun little film uh, called uh, Tea with Dames. Uh, uh, what is that? It's. Uh, uh, I think it's the director of Notting Hill. Uh, I can't remember his name off. Roger something. Roger Mitchell, uh, M- Michelle, or I don't. Know. Anyway, he uh, set down uh, Judy Dench, Maggie Smith. Joan Plowright and uh, Eileen Ek- uh, Atkins, and they're all dames. Uh, they, you know, for the uh, in the royal, uh, they got uh, knighted or whatever you call it when you knight a dame or whatever. And they sit down and talk about memories. Of course, Joan was married to Lawrence Olivier, and mm. all four of them worked with Larry. Mm. And they had, and it's just they, they, they're kind of friends. They they get together every once in a while, so they put this on film, and they're just reminiscing a lot of film clips. How long is it? Uh, it's a net feature length documentary, and it's what what's interesting is you know. These ladies are mostly known for stage work, and so they're kind of their their bulk of their work is unknown to us in some ways. Of course, now Maggie Maggie's like the most cinematic, I guess, uh, has the most cinematic career of the four of them. And then Judy, of course, now is real. I was, was going to say Judy name. Probably. Well, yeah, but but we didn't before, cinematic before Mrs. Brown. What do you know of Judy? You know, and the M. You know, that, that, that's fair. That's fair. I, there there was also that name with uh, uh, Maggie Smith, where she was just kind of. Uh, I just remember when she was in Hook, it felt like she was very in demand and didn't seem to be doing a lot of movies, you know? Yeah. I think what happens, you know, it, a lot of the British actors, it just seems like uh, we, we, we miss out on some of their great works because it's all stage. Right. And when they get older, they just kind of like, all of a sudden they're like, they're, you know, Ian McKellen or Anthony Hopkins. We see, you know, the, the, their, as them as elder statesmen. I think you could say the same thing about a lot of New York actors. Uh, so the one thing I watched this week that I wanted to throw by you, I, I had another busy week where I didn't get to watch much except a few of the movies that we're going to discuss on this episode. But I had a slot last night to watch something. And I, I, I picked between my two Netflix movies. And knowing that you were going to be coming back to talk about it, I picked... Sam Peckinpah's final movie, The Osterman Weekend. Oh, okay. <laughs> I reviewed that when it was out really? for, for an Evansville uh, entertainment magazine. It, it, 
Oh wow! I just I kept the whole the whole way I was through it. It's it's such a it's entertaining. It's a Robert Ludlow novel, so it's got an engine to it and it's going. But at the same time, they kept making all these choices, and I just say, what a weird movie. And the first thing I want to ask you about is I kept thinking of uh, Network and Patty Chayefsky as someone who started out in TV and near into their career just chastising TV in their movie. That's true. I mean, I mean, really thought about that because you know, Peckinball people forget that he had a really really cool cool uh critically acclaimed tv portion of his career as a writer yeah know. writer and he, he basically is one of the creators of rifleman uh and uh did gun smokes and and then his westerner with uh, brian keith or that little series is just fantastic and the way this movie attacks tv is so it's fun it's it's just it's so but i, I don't want to say strident as if it's unpleasant because it's it's really fun the way it does it but it really has a bug up its ass against tv yeah, I need to, I need to revisit that. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it's you know we were all kind of a lot of us rushed to it because you know you said uh, people Ludlum fans were going to it, and then you had uh, this is post uh, uh, is it this post uh, Alien John Hurt uh, yeah 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 and then and then Rutger Hauer's hot off of Blade Runner and so you know and then you got uh, you know they got classic Burt Lancaster showing up in it so it was kind of a he got such a hell of a cast yeah yeah, yeah it's you know they all came came for it but it just ends up kind of being a kind of a mishmash well the the other the, I, 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 you said you saw you haven't seen it since in the theaters i think i've may have watched it one more time since then but it's been a long time do you know anything about the dvd release because it felt it was it had a fox logo at the front of it but it also felt like something that got, got slipped into a public domain and had a, a, a dvd release because it had this very bizarre dolby digital mix to it that was like very clearly mod- it felt like i've never really watched them but it felt like one of those public domain night of the living deads where someone souped up the sound on. No, I, yeah, it wasn't like I thought there was a Thorn AMI really, or there's were they involved, or uh, I think there was a, there was not a uh, it might have been a pickup uh, like Fox just picked it up for distribution. It might have been I, a, a different production. House. I get well because the other promise is that it's like Peck and Paul. Like you, also, I want to also like know what exactly. Taken away because it's also like you have these slow motion sequences that like <laughs> Peck and Paul being the father of all this, but it, it's so different than the way it's done today and when the way he like plays around with sound when he's trying to do these slow motion sequences and what he chooses to shoot in slow motion there's a car chase early in the movie that like is just 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 from a, a cinema standpoint or just from a director standpoint of setup is odd well yeah for the, uh, the people that worship sam and there's you know there's uh, quite a interesting group of them they're probably gonna tar and feather me for saying this but i think Sam got into a trap that he said, "I gotta have a slow motion scene in this because he was that's became he was kind of known for that." I still haven't seen. Uh, uh, next up on my list are Cross of Iron and Convoy. Are there slow motion scenes in there? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting. I, I, at least I know Cross of Iron. I, uh, and Convoy. Oh, that's a that's even a, the the thing about Convoy is a huge mess, but it's worth uh, watching it with the uh, commentary by the scholar, the uh, peck and ball experts. We call them the Peck and Paul Posse. There's a, <laughs> the four or five that've written books on the stuff, and this ties into Bedecker in a way because we'll, you'll we'll see how this ties in. But uh, Sam has an interesting uh, kind of artistic aesthetic tie into the, the Randolph Scott Bedecker films. Yeah, well, part of the reason we're doing Bedecker is besides, I mean, the main reason is Evansville native, but also you were the one that's always been pushing me to the years through him, and I was resisted until basically the week before we, we prepped for this. <laughs> I'm so happy you watched the box that I bought you years ago. Years ago, and enjoyed it, too. Yeah, I'm glad you did, because I was scared. Uh, it, it It's so it's so hard. Uh, some people get past, the, you know, Cowboys and Indians and the, the archaic and repetition and it's you know and it's kind of the western is dead uh, syndrome and all that stuff but when you really 
watch these films, these six films. It, it, the abstraction. We're going to get into it. I mean, right. you're, 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 you'll be amazed. And it's. I think you guys. I think it'd be uh, if you're interested in film at all, you really need to check these out. Yeah, I, I think the only one I had seen uh, initially was Ride Lonesome, and I had this rep, feeling that I was watching B movie conformity fifty stuff with the star that like, as Robert talks about later, like has his own specific charms, but some people view as the lesser John Wayne or the B-movie John Wayne. But that's, I mean, as Robert points out, that's that does not exactly entail what Randolph Scott's power is as an actor, too. But these movies are lean, very influential on people like uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, Clint Tarantino. was influenced. Uh, Clint Tarantino. Uh, uh, yeah, Tarantino uh, especially. Uh, yeah, you, and, and when you, uh, well, you, again, you're gonna, we're going to go into this in more detail, but uh, I'm a child of Leone. Uh, that's, you know, that was the uh, the trilogy, the Man with No Name trilogy hit me hard when I was an impressionable age. So it's hard for me to watch, uh, take in any B-movies. But once I watched these six films especially, I thought, oh my gosh, Sergio is uh, really influenced by them. We discussed this in the episode, but the thing I found fascinating that I opened myself up to is he seems like the bridge between uh, John Ford and to Sergio Leone, the major one. Like, we talk about Anthony Mann a little and, yeah. and some others. But anyway, uh, we've... We should just go ahead and get into the episode. So with yeah. without further ado, writer Robert Knott talking about Bud Bedecker, Evansville native Bud Bedecker. Is Randolph Scott more of your uh, point of expertise? Uh, I suppose Randolph Scott is probably the main Western film actor I know the most about, but I've got a soft spot for Audie Murphy, a B-level actor, a World War II hero who I always thought was kind of a dangerous actor and not, not given very many good movies. Um, so I also really like him and I like Joel McRae. I like the B-level, the B-plus guys I like a lot. Um, I wasn't into the B series movies. I wasn't into Autry or Rogers or Tim Holtz or Hopalong, but I like those guys a lot. Um, I think I grew up on a lot of the same movies as Ted. Uh, I heard, I, the show you did together where you talked about James Bond. I think the first one I saw was the uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and I thought this is good Bond. Oh no, I I, I don't have anything left to say the rest of this episode. But I didn't know Sean Connery, so it was all new to me. But, uh, yeah, so all of that and uh, just hanging out and sleeping in and not changing clothes. How old are you, uh, if I may ask? Uh, I'm 60. I'm guessing you're about 10 years ahead of me. Actually, no, I'm 62. Oh, really? 62. Why, why did I think you were older? Is it because you grew up on different movies than me? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess I, I decided maybe I had a little bit of a head start with my dad taking going to movies. I don't know. Uh because I'm thinking I might have saw you only know, twice in the theater, possibly. I think when I saw your show with Shane, I kept thinking you were born around 1950, even though you don't look it. You, uh, look, you look like my age, like early 60s. So. Yeah, 19, right. I was November 1958 is my... Uh, and I'm December 1960, so yeah, good. Well, the, way I was, the main thing is that I'm a child of Leone. You know, Leone's my god. And so... It's taken me, it was a long curve to get to the, go backwards to Westerns. And, you know, I mean, I, I was more like, oh, that's a good joke, Randolph Scott and Mel Brooks Blazing Saddles. Because I thought, you know, I probably lumped Randolph 
in with every you know with Altry and I you know I wasn't really making that much of a difference uh, till I started getting uh, you know started becoming a more film fanatic and fi- and figuring these things out and the criticism and books and then I was thinking well what about these these better Randolph Scott films there's something going on here but um, but yeah it took me a while because uh, so I'm curious how if you're close to my age you seem to got into it much faster those westerns um, as a because you know, to me, westerns like they need to be dirty, grimy, Peck and Paul, Leone. They, you know, and so anything you know other than that, it didn't. It was like, oh, that's old Hollywood crud. You know, I never got your book, the other book yet, the mail. Never Thank came. you again for sending that, by the way. But I did. But I did order. I do have your hardback of the last of the uh, the Western Cowboys. Uh, Audie Murphy, Joel McRae, Randolph Scott. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I was looking through that, and you talked about how you grew up watching uh, watching these guys and watching these westerns. And if we're the close the same age, I was not doing that, and you were doing that. So I, I'm curious, you know, is, how did you? Is that true? Is that you were well, automatic? My, my dad, Bruce, was born in 1930, and he grew up on westerns. And so when the westerns popped up on TV in metropolitan New York City area, I grew up about an hour north of New York City. Um, you know, they played the Universal, the RKO the Warner Brothers, Westerns. My dad loved Errol Flynn, who I think only made about eight Westerns. Uh, he loved him in Westerns. And so he pretty much got me watching these guys. Uh, we didn't get the B series. We didn't get, like I said, we didn't get Roy Rogers, Gene Autry. I didn't, I didn't see any of their movies till I got out of the military. And I, I could never catch on to them. It was a little too late. But what I call those B plus guys that were in between Wayne and Cooper and say down to uh, Rogers Autry, I saw a lot of those pictures, you know, and Randolph Scott, Joel McRae, Audie Murphy, to a much lesser degree, uh, people like Rory Calhoun, uh, Rod Cameron, names that don't really mean anything to anybody today. They would pop up in some of them. But so, you're saying, uh, these are on television or at the theater? They were the on drama? television with lots of commercials. and Okay. Uh, yeah, and the Bedeker, the Bud Bedeker Westerns were on there, um, usually on Channel 9, W-O-R-T-V, sometimes W-N-E-W, Channel 5. Where did you grow up, Ted, and what were your local TV stations? Uh, there were three three networks. Evansville, Indiana, where Bud grew up. See, we're from, one reason we're really interested in this is that uh, Bud grew up in Evansville, and it's, it's a really interesting story how we tried to get him to come here before. Not by the time you were talking to him, interviewing him in 97, we were probably about that around that time trying to call and get him to come to Evansville. It would have been what 15, 20 years into him being on the festival circuit post Aruza, uh, uh, I guess. But anyway, uh, I grew up and uh, the uh, the, uh, the I, I didn't watch the westerns out there on television like you, it sounds like you did. Uh, did you have an independent channel? I mean, maybe uh, there was a lot of uh, westerns on an independent channel that you had. Yeah, I mean, the channels we had in New York were, um, aside from ABC, CBS, the pre-cable, they were like the rural channels, and they they loved to play those kind of movies, just like they played Godzilla movies, which I watched. Yeah, TV, I mean, I I was, you know, TV westerns I knew about, what little that were still playing when I was growing up, but I think I just, my exposure to westerns was mainly through my dad at drive-ins and theaters at the time, the new releases. And uh, we didn't seem to watch much Westerns at home. So, Robert, I want to ask, did you get to Buttaker through, if not Randolph Scott, specifically through the actors at the time? Was the main was the main impetus before? Or when did you first real, read the name Bud Bedeker or realize the name Bud Bedeker? You know, I saw some of his, you know, watching, I don't know if it's true of YouTube, but 
watching movies as a kid, as a teen, you didn't always look at the director or writer. You remembered the plot and the actors. And um, that changes as you get older. So knowing whether Bedeker directed one or not was not really that um, um, obvious to me until I saw the tall T playing in a bowling alley in the days when bowling alleys had TVs and they let kids wander into the bar to watch them. There's and that I, great description of that in your book too. Yeah, yeah thanks. And, and it was just that whole sense of this, there's something weird and dark happening here. A little boy just got killed and thrown in a well, you know, 18 minutes into the movie. And these bad guys are holding up a stage line are going to do terrible things to the human beings. There it was a movie shot in 56 it would be perfect for a remake today because of its violent dark edge. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, using TV guide as a guide, I started to see, okay, this was directed by, but they still didn't tell you who wrote it, who produced it. And so you just, I just sort of kept my eye out for pictures that, you know, were directed by Bud Bedeker. Um, and, and ultimately when I decided to do the book, the last of the cowboy heroes about Audie Murphy, Joel McRae, Randolph Scott, I knew I had to talk to Bedeker who worked with all three of them two of them as a director, one, Joel McRae, as an assistant director. And I wrote him an old-fashioned snail mail, 1996, just just pre-internet by a year maybe, with a self-addressed envelope. And he, he responded and said, call me. And then I decided to, to drive from New York, I was married at the time, to California and stop everywhere I could along the way to interview people who worked in these movies whom I'd written self-addressed stamped envelopes to uh, (laughs) at the research centers along the way, including the uh, university of Wisconsin has a great one up there. And uh, Bud agreed to meet me in Ramona, California. And I went out there and it was like the proverbial highlight of the visit. The the whole trip. uh, I spent about four hours with him on an October, 1997 afternoon uh, with him and his wife, Mary. And he just, he loved to talk about Randolph Scott and to a lesser degree, Audie Murphy and Joel McRae. Um, one of the themes I loved about whatever uh, the book was you, you seem very reverent about what he would say, but also you were very clear eyed about how he's told these stories before and you understood how he was very printing the legend to speak of some of these stories. Just re- <laughs> like he'd rehearse these stories over and over. I love it. He got good at telling the same stories with some variation, like all of us do. And he worked with a screenwriter named Burt Kennedy, who is not as well known. But Burt wrote, you know, four and to some degree uncredited five of the Randolph Scotts that Bud shot. And uh, when Burt told me something Bud had told him, told me was not true, I asked Bud and he said, well, if if Burt tells you it's not true, he's telling you the truth. (laughs) Burt, Burt said, you know, but has told the same story so many times he doesn't know what the truth is anymore and neither do I. So it just speaks to that sense of like, we're allowing people to tell history without really knowing as historians or journalists, whether it is the truth. I mean, you're doing a podcast. People are going to find this. They're going to see we're talking, but there's yeah. stuff out there shot on some, you know, a day, you know, a Friday afternoon in the summer of 56 on some B Western Nobody wrote it down. It happened or it didn't. And you get enough people on the set to say, yeah, it happened. And Bud had a lot of those it happened stories. And uh, so the journalist in me always had my eyebrows raised like, is this the truth? But I imagine a lot of times it was. And maybe sometimes it's okay that it wasn't. It sounds also just like if he spent the last 20 years of his life on the festival circuit telling these stories, that these stories got very rehearsed. The main reason I wanted to do this um, 
podcast on Bud Bedecker, besides the fact that he's, how would you say, Ted? He's the most, he's definitely, like, of directors from Evansville, he's, I think we've only had two or three that have done a studio movie. Um, even then, they've only done one. Uh, he's easily the most critically acclaimed director from Evansville. But the reason I want to do it is Bud went to my high school. And um, if you, like, when I was, uh, I, I decided I wanted to be a director as a teenager. And whenever I looked at the famous alum picture, I don't know if Bud Bedecker's in there. Like, I, I, like, Central also, I went to Central High School. And Evansville, one of the reasons I always like describe Evansville as being a backwards town is that I went to Central High School, and at the time I went to Central High School, Central High School was north of North High School. North High School has since been moved north of Central High School, but <laughs> Bud went to Central High School when it was still downtown, and in the 70s it moved to the north side of town, which is when I went to it, and then just a few years ago, North High School moved back north of Central High School, which I guess, yay for the designers of our town, but... Um, <laughs> Just this, it, 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 it sounded like a Bud Bedecker story, Shane. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's although it does it, not as well rehearsed and not as well told, um, also not as well directed. Bud is the most notable director from Evansville. Just there's there's a few exceptions. Matt Williams being probably the most notable, but there's a few directors from Evansville. But Bud is the be all end all. No other director from Evansville has been cited by. Martin Scorsese, Qu uh, Quentin Tarantino, and uh, Clint Eastwood as a as a influence. So he would have graduated. I'm guessing 34, right? He was born in 16. He was born in the autumn of 1916. So probably 1934 he graduated. Is there like a graduate class photo? You know, I, I don't know about that. I watched the documentary on the thing, and there was an article about uh, his uh, playing basketball, beating a familiar high school in town. I I, I had lunch with my dad to, uh, earlier today and was asking him about the Buttaker Kellogg hardware store, which would have been on, it's like third or fourth on yeah. mainstream, which I guess is where uh, um, Clayton's is right now. But he was my dad was also telling me that he remembered uh, Bud's, Bedecker's parents corporation was basically the dock in Evansville. It was the port of Evansville. And there was a large white building that he could see from his grandparents' house off the river. And that makes sense. And they wanted Bud to come work in that business. And he didn't want to do that. Um, that's great. You went to that high school. Yeah. How had you seen many of his movies before you reached out to me? Either one of them. Uh, well, Ted would be the instigator for this. What's, I feel really embarrassed to say, Ted, Ted and I, before we were talking, went over our history watching. They brought in, uh, we, we, we got our timelines wrong, but we thought it would have been 2001 around the time he died. They brought in a print of Ride Lonesome, and I feel really shitty to say, I was in college. I had these grand ideas of experimental ideas of film and seeing a fifties Western. I had this view of this square star bound Western and we watched, I don't think it was a great print of it. And I had the shittiest viewing of it and planning to do this. I just wanted to do something on someone great from Evansville. I emailed you before this. I talked about seeing tall T tall T was my gateway back in just three days ago. I love tall T. It was so good. Well, we need to what we what we need to do. Like you and I need to ask Shane because he's watching these for the first time mm -hmm. and, and and get his virgin reaction to these things. I because I knew Shane was a little bit 
reluctant back when I first... And by the way, Ted, I want to wholeheartedly apologize to you because I think you were the person that pushed me to watch them and I was just like, I'm not watching I them. Bought them the, yeah, I bought them the Columbia box set a long That's time what I ago watched. and he didn't touch it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, how, you bought this for me like 15... How, when did it come out? Like, Is that the Bud Bedecker set? Yeah, yeah, the Bud Bedecker Columbia set. Yeah, and I, I bought it for him and, he, and I, I could tell that he was not going to get around to it. And, I, and you know, I don't know, if you, you probably had the same reaction maybe earlier and and it got into it but when you start really analyzing and looking at these films they're just amazing the better the the re, the renown cycle i just i could I'll keep on going back and back to them they're just uh, such a uh aesthetically pleasing interesting films that you you know came out of this period it's just amazing and they're so minimalistic you know they're yes. like they're um, so minimalistic i don't want to say samuel beckett in terms of writing but they're you know, like that waiting for Godot, just a one tree and one set and, and everything that the characters want is so clear. And there were, you know, a series of them that basically the, the Columbia set, as Ted pointed out, there's five. They did one for Warner Brothers for John Wayne's company, Badjack. The first one, Seven Men from Now. So there's six. Then Bud directed one with Scott, which had none of the other influences, which is not a particularly good movie called Westbound for Warner Brothers. So there's seven. But really that Westbound's the one that's in Breathless, isn't it, by the way? Uh, I think it is. I think they picked the lesser known one, um, which had just been released in 59. Mm. And maybe that was, you know, copyright issues. They could get away with it. But but it's unfortunate that Bedeker is really known for those Randolph Scott Westerns and to a lesser degree, the bullfighting pictures, which which don't quite have the same weight as the as the Randolph Scott's. So Shane, did you watch them all, or which ones did you see or not see? I uh, watched all of them except Ride Lonesome. I wanted to, I tried to get Ride Lonesome in today and couldn't fit it in, which I, you know, was the first one I'd seen. I wanted to rewatch it to see if I, you know, uh, I'm almost positive I have to have a revitalized viewing of it. But yeah, I like them all. Well, you know, it, well, I thought it was a very telltale sign, and I don't know if I told Shane back when uh, Scorsese did his documentary, A Personal Journey Through American Film. Um, he does that tall T clip, and he and he's talking to, and he shows the clip where they pull up in the stagecoach, you know, the kids in the well, and you know, even you know, even then, Scorsese, uh, that really caught my attention too. I don't know what the timing, uh, when I saw that and then when I got into him, but that was like, oh wow, uh, because and tall T is my favorite. Too. You know, which one I had a really interesting action to was one I feel like you were saying was kind of a mess in the book was decision at sundown and decision at sundown is interesting, but wow, what an ending you have an ending where your big star has a drunk tantrum in the movie. <laughs> it, it, it's an offbeat story about a man coming back to a town to get revenge of against another man who seduced the first man's wife who then killed herself. And it's so studio bound, but Randolph Scott, never, never an actor of great um, emotional projection. It, you know, basically goes crazy at the end of the picture and, you know, screams at everybody and says, you know, this is a mess of a life we all have and rides out of town. Right. It does have the weight of the others to me because Burt Kennedy didn't direct it. And it's set on the back lot of Columbia, whereas they often went out to Lone Pine or, or Old Tucson and brought the expanse of the West 
with them in these pictures. That makes sense. They they did they did feel very. Um, I was very conscious of this idea. This is the birth of TV westerns. I mean, like I I saw also that he directed the later directed the pirate for Maverick. So that yeah. made sense. Yeah, and he got into TV and then left it. He quickly. He wasn't real interested in TV. Um, but that's an offbeat misfire that I still quite like. Um, did you watch um, Comanche Station? I did. I watched that this morning, actually. Yeah, which is an interesting story of a man looking for his wife who's been taken by the Comanches and trying to save a woman who's been taken by the Comanches as a really sort of poignant, powerful ending. You but, had an exchange in the book that I found interesting about that where um, there were the sequences where the Comanches were surrounding Randolph Scott and you said, or someone posed Buttaker that is this not a bullfighter being surrounded by in the middle of a ring. Right. Because the bullfighter, Bedeker went to Mexico as a, after he got out of your high school, like three, imagine 20 years old and you're getting ready to fight bulls in Mexico in the late thirties. And he fell in love with it. And a lot of people like to project um, representation in his movies of the bullfighter in the Westerns. There's absolutely some truth to it. Um, and you go back and look at ride lonesome and I'm sure Ted knows this. The final scene is set in a clearing with trees surrounding it like an arena. Um, but, you know, Bud would say, no, no. I mean, Randolph Scott's surrounded by Comanches. He's in trouble. Has nothing to do with the bullfighting. To some degree, I think there was truth to that. And to some degree, probably not. Um, but but uh, they're, they're all pretty good pictures. Did you see Seven Men from Now, the first one, which Warner's released? No, that is actually probably the next one on the list. Ted, watch that just uh, what, two yeah, days ago. Yeah, the second, third, fourth time. It's yeah, it's uh, yeah. The, the blueprint is right there, right off the bat. Of course, with seven in from now. Right, it sets up the the style and the theme of the rest. It's amazing that they made like, let's throw away Westbound. They made like six of these in roughly four years, from fifty five to fifty nine, released in fifty six to sixty. And, and, and people kept coming back to watch them. And then they've got this reputation after all these years. There's actually a new Randolph Scott Blu-ray collection coming out, which includes a couple of the Bedekers, but not all of them. There's going to be better prints of them. One is Buchanan Rides Alone, which is such a weird one-off. Did either of you see that? I watched that one. Oh, I yeah. I watched that one. You know, where Scott is a mercenary who rides into this border town in California. Nothing to do with the rest of the movies. Pretty much everybody just shoots everybody like crazy. That that'd be another good one for a remake. And that ties into some of the Leone stuff, Ted, where like guy coming in and there's two warring factions in a town. He kind of sets them against each other, but it's got a more of a comic, dark comic edge to it. It's not as renowned as the others, but I quite like the movie. It's just kind of a fun, goofy. Well, the funniest thing is when you watch them in order, like I was doing through the box set, there's, you know, the first two have the bizarre, um, I guess from, I hate to do the modern reading, but the problematic characters names in one of them. And then you get to Buchanan and the Mex the Randolph Scott is defending the Mexican and the whole point. And the whole point is the, you know, defending the other side of the border too. Um, one of the other fascinating things I found also from reading your book was the mention, um, Buttaker made a point of only doing a day of prep on these movies, these very fast, low budget movies. And, Typically, you think that that would be a recipe for disaster, but he talked about how 
that helped the spontaneity of the movies. The fact that these movies seem very violent for the late fifties too. The the guy getting stabbed in the arm, the 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 blood for some reason didn't look that same fake red that you typically feel for the next ten years in films. Like it felt real, you know. And yet they're not action packed movies. The, the the action comes in spurts and moments. Um the tall T has the scene without giving too much away for someone who's maybe listening, but hasn't seen it, you know, where character gets his head shot off with a shotgun. That was brutal. It's brutal. And it's, yeah. 50, it's shot in 56 released in 57. Yeah. And you're, and then you get a quick shot when his body slumps to the ground. It doesn't look fake. Ish. I guess. I, I don't know. Like it, it, I don't know. It didn't seem like they were hiding it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And there's there, there's scenes like that in all the movies. Um, somebody getting it in the back. Um, you know, some a character found in a river with an arrow in the back. Um, a man hanging, looking like he's being hanged when the the rope drops and they let the guy actually hang for three seconds. So there's this sort of stark violence that they could still get away with as the studio system, the old-fashioned studio system where they signed everybody to seven years, was falling apart in the 50s. And coming into that new light of the 60s and 70s with independent film that we probably all love and grew up with. Yeah. But still get away with a little bit of that exciting independence as the old-fashioned studio system was falling apart. They were shooting out in Lone Pine. Who, who paid attention? We'll get this done in 12 days. Leave us alone. 400, 500 grand, imagine. I do love that story. It was in the documentary, uh, the Eastwood produced documentary, where uh, he's talking to Lucian Ballard, the cinematographer of uh, Wild Bunch and The Killing, amongst others. And he's he's talking about, um, Ludeker's talking about how proud he feels about, you know, I've gone through this. Others might have scouted this normally, but I went through this with horses. And I know horses on rocks and what they would deal with. And I want to see a horse come in through rocks. And he talks about this scene. He's like, put the camera here. I don't think anyone would have ever shot here. And Lucian Ballin comes up and says, you can do it here or here. And he's like, why are these two my options? He goes, well, because Raoul Wash shot here 20 years ago. It's a good story. I mean, because Bud Bedeker made Lone Pine, those hills, the Alabama hills, look like, you know, brand new, exciting frontier, much like John Ford made Monument Valley look the same way. But Bedeker's landscapes had a harshness to them and a dryness and a anything could be behind that rock, including a human rattlesnake. Um, but that's a good story. And Randolph Scott comes riding up and Raoul Walsh was there in 1930 with something. Um, Ballard, I think, funny enough, shot Buchanan Rides Alone, which was shot in the old Tucson in Arizona. Um, but, but, you know, that's the sort of thing. I mean, Bud did have a good self-deprecating sense of humor. He knew when he was full mm. of you know, baloney. Um, although I think I can say anything worse than that on the podcast. I mean, that's <laughs> I, right. You um, can say as much as, yeah. I figured as much. Like he understood that, but at the same time, they were making these things off really tight, tightly written scripts. They were making them up as they went along. And if an actor said, how about this? Bud would say, let's do it. And wait, doesn't this sound more authentic? They let's do it, but we're shooting fast. Come on. The lights going boom. Somehow, somehow it worked. Well, I didn't look this up before uh, we started this tonight. That um, was uh, Seven Men From Now. Was that Burt's first uh, script, or had he done any kind of script writing before that? Yeah, that's a good question. Burt Kennedy had been uh, served in the army in World War II and saw action, unlike Bud, who was in the Navy. 
and saw no action, no reflection on either man with that butt. So Bud knew horses and bulls and animals, and Bert knew violence and death and shooting and fear and cowardice. One of the reasons I like an actor named Audie Murphy, who was in a couple of Bud movies, is you see in that World War II hero with the gray eyes that this man saw death and he saw, he probably did see cowardice, desperation, murder, killing. And you see him in these B Westerns bringing that to life in a way that kind of wish he'd worked with Bud more often in better movies. Um, so, so the whole notion of like um, coming out of the army, like Burt Kennedy, and suddenly you're working for John Wayne, who's producing his own movies and write this script this was his first produced script, although he'd worked on other stuff, been a bit player and an actor. Um, the same year as, as Seven Men From Now, a revenge picture about, again, a man whose wife's been killed. And now he wants to find the seven men who did it. And the seven men don't even know they did it because the woman just happened to be in the office and they shot her during a robbery. They don't know who she was. So they're being chased by this killer who wants to dig graves, who wants to dig their graves. And so that adds a whole new energy to it. It came out the same year as a little B called Gun the Man Down with James Arness, a B-level actor who later was in Gunsmoke, of course. A very different revenge story that I won't give away. But So really, Burt's first two credits are 56 with Seven Men and uh, Gun the Man Down. Can't remember off the top of my head which one came out first, but that's basically the start of his career, yeah. Well, because the reason... Getting back into but the whole uh, cycle here again, just recently, knowing that we were going to talk to you, um, a lot of thoughts have percolated in my head about this, and and um, uh, I'm looking forward to the, the, reading your book all the way through because you, I guess, I want to read about the non uh, Western, the non Randolph Scott ones that he did because I, it seems to me that the critical consensus, you know, like you said, I think you already said this that you know everybody zones in on the rent the, the renowned renowned cycle. And then pretty much ignores all the rest, but there is something about uh, you want to say uh, uh, you know this is an alter theory. Uh, they want to put an alter theory on Bedecker for these uh, Randolph Scott films, but it seems like it's that that uh, convergence of Burt Kennedy and Randolph Scott and uh, Bedecker and the producer and a few other people they were working with, Lucian Ballard and uh, Clothier maybe. Um, what was the other writer uh, that he worked with? Well, Charles Lang, but I don't know if he didn't really contribute that much. Mm. But uh, the uh, it seems like that this is a really good example of how a collaborative a film is. Uh, would you say that, or do you still think that Butterker is the, the overriding value of this film? I I, I don't know because you've you've seen all the uh, the pre Burt Kennedy uh, Butterker films. You saw what he did afterwards. Uh, there's something about you know that uh, I want to say this is more of almost a defense of collaboration than it is altruism. So, I like that thought, Ted, because the truth is, yeah, it was like a really good theater ensemble that held together for four, roughly four years, and they would even pull back some of the same actors, uh, Skip Homier or Scope Skip Homier. I can never pronounce his name. <laughs> yeah, he's in a couple of them. Karen Steele, who was Bud's girlfriend, is in three of them. Um, and they had this ensemble that knew each other so well that they could build these scripts. But I absolutely believe it was that, that group feeling, um, of putting together a really good theater show that worked for as long as it could work at the tail end of the studio system before everything would fall about part pretty much for almost everybody involved. 
Randolph Scott quietly retired after a really good Sam Peckinpah picture called Why the High Country. So he went out with dignity. But really, it was that perfect, you know, um, convergence, as you said, of, of all these real talents together. And there's a reason most of Bud's other movies are not as well known. And I know Bud Bedecker fans are going to want to hunt me down. But they're really, yeah, some of them are okay. Some of them have flair. Some of them have a moment that say, wow, we're going to see that later in a Randolph Scott picture. But even Bud said a lot of them are not that good. And the truth is, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are not that good. The uh, and the dialogue that Bert, some of the lines and and the whole terseness of it, the sparseness. I don't know. Have we seen that in any westerns prior to that? Uh, you know, and just the lines like at the tall T ends. Well, I think it's going to be a nice day. You know, the end on that, or the or or, or the, uh, the get a shovel at the end of it. Uh, Buchanan rides along. Well, it's got some shovels. The uh, and Randolph like when Richard Boone confronts uh, Randolph Scott for the first time, he goes, "You scared." And they have the hero go, yeah. He I says mean, it's so like, oh, it's oh just, obviously, it's I'm so, scared. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Have we seen, I don't know, I don't think we, uh, you tell me because you're more uh, well-versed in Westerns. Had we seen that kind of writing in Westerns uh, prior to the, this cycle? I do have a quote from Taylor Hackfield in the, in the documentary where he says that um, Buttaker introduced the sympathetic bad man into the Western. But, yeah, I mean, do you agree with that, that the writing, the... Uh, have we seen that? Well, I mean, throwing it back at you, who probably has a better, I mean, go back and look at the John Ford Westerns, mostly with John Wayne, or the Anthony Mance with James Stewart. And do they resonate the same way with the dialogue? They and don't. I mean, I'm going to say no. I'd rather watch a yeah. Bud Bunker, Randolph Scott movie than a James Stewart, Anthony Mann, John Ford, John Wayne, even though they have their merits. They don't have that gritty western dialect that Bert had down and Bud knew how to hone to such a degree that Bud always claimed hard to hard to figure it out that he came up with the last line of Buchanan rides alone and to put it in context there's dead people everywhere <laughs> and one character comes to another and says you know don't just stand there go get a shovel and we know where that's going and that's the final line of the movie which is not in the book um at the same time to give Bert who I think is was a terrific writer the Tall T was based on an Elmer Leonard short story called The Captives. Did either of you read it? I haven't, but I was going to ask you, Elmer Leonard is famously the uh, uh, instigator of this terse style of dialogue. Right, and noir and gritty crime movies. And uh, and and basically, the short story is the story of a rancher, Brennan, played by Randolph Scott in the movie, caught up in a hostage crisis where these men are going to kill and if need be rape a woman they've already killed a little boy in in the short story they've killed a little boy and thrown him in the well in the movie and this man brennan wants to stay alive and we don't know if he's a killer he's a rancher that's a cowboy doesn't mean killer he doesn't wear a six gun he's got to figure out how to stay alive using his wits and his desire to live with a virginal aging woman who no man wants um pretty much on their own in a little cave where they're being held hostage by three bloodthirsty killers who want hostage money for the woman who is, uh, her dad's, you know, runs a mine. So there's money. Uh, I, I would, I would, I would categorize it as two bloodthirsty killers and one ambivalent killer who's leading the two thir bloodthirsty no, killers. Actually, Shane, you're right. The, the, 
the leader has got some moral sense. He actually says, I don't do the killing they do. It's that whole sense of a man letting others kill for him. So you're, you're right. You, you, you're right about that. One of the things that, that structurally won me over about the movie more than anything else was that um, this movie, I was very wary of Randolph Scott smiling, doing this very 50s uh, friendly acting. Some actors always smile as deference. And for the first 20 minutes of the movie, I had no idea what was happening with this movie. And it took 20 minutes for conflict to even come into the movie. And when it came in, it became very clear how simple and through-minded this movie was going to be about its conflict and direct. And it was a very simple-minded movie, but it still was direct to the point and intense. And I think if there's something that hurts the movie, it's the 20 minutes, which are not in the short story. The short story picks up with Brennan's on the stage, but they needed to make an 80-minute movie for the B-Western. So buying the kid the candy. Yeah, cycle. So they've got 20 minutes. So it deceives you. It deceives you into saying, what the hell is this movie about? So I would worry about a young audience watching this movie today, unlike the others, and giving up on it 15 minutes in. But the minute, the minute they get to the stagecoach line. <laughs> I will give well, you structurally that bought me to the movie. But, uh, I mean, I was committed 20 minutes in. So That's that's funny that you said that because um, we were the professor at, US, at, the, at the university where we were going to try to bring your body in. Uh, and show and have him be able to talk and show movies. We we had to take out some videotapes to show him some Bud movies, uh, Bud Medicare, Randolph Scott movies. We had these VHS like SLP mode <laughs> tapes of them because at the time there was really crappy versions out on VHS, and we start showing him the Tall T, and the reaction in that first twenty like they're about ready to, to turn off, you know, to that twist comes. But for me, I mean, I, I knew, of course, by then I knew, of course, it was coming. And I love that of the film. I, I know you said you, you, you almost wish you would cut it off and, or it deceives the audience. But I, that's one thing I think is so unique about that film. It's like, do 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 we're having a happy little Western here. And then, bam, it hits you hard. I'm not, I'm not sure how much Randolph Scott smiles after that point. And, uh, and it's, I, I'm trying to think, you know, I was talking to Todd Fox, um, my close friend, who also really got me going into the Bedecker films because – he, I had the Horizons West book early on, and I kind of ignored it, and he borrowed it from me, and he kept going, what's this Butterker stuff in here? And then we started investigating it once uh, Todd got into it, and uh, I was taping some stuff off uh, cable, but uh, watching the, uh, I was talking to Todd the other night, what the evolution of us getting into Butterker, what other film does that? That twist, so harsh a twist. And the only one we could think of was uh, the uh, Dusk of Dawn. Where you're watching uh, on the, you know, Clooney. Oh, uh, perfect. Uh, analogy, yeah. And that's the only other film. I, I don't know of anyone that does such, such a harsh turn. I, can, uh, um, I mean, I, I, I typically will bring up Something Wild or Full Metal Jacket, but those are two movies that just twist halfway through the movie and become a, they basically structure themselves as two different movies yeah. in the middle of the movie. But nothing that like switches like that, where it's like, by the way, this movie is completely different <laughs> than what you expected, and it's going to get really intense because of it. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, uh, I wanted to go back. Uh, did you uh, were you done talking about the the Leonard book and and Bert's adaptation of that? I'm making what? it up as I go along, so I have no <laughs> idea. But the line you mentioned, "Come on now, it's going to be a nice day," which is a beautiful closing line, is in the short story. Okay. So, yeah. but it's a great you know for people who haven't seen the movie, we're still not giving too much away. After all this violence, you know, a character to say, "Come on, it's going to be a nice day," and you you know what I'm talking about. 
Um, so go ahead. Yeah, fire away. By the way, Robert, I want to thank you so much for getting more discipline for keeping away from spoilers and information of the last 30 minutes of the movie, which is something that is sorely lacking on my part for every episode of this podcast. So I thank like you very much. It. I don't care if I try to avoid it, even in my book, the films of Bud Bedecker, but I can't help it myself. But like, you know, maybe someone hasn't seen these and they want to go watch them. So and I get it. I get. I, I. I. I get it. So, like I was saying, the uh, the uh, the terseness and the sparseness and the the really uh, really intelligent lines that Bert comes up with, and then like Shane interjected just shortly uh, uh, recently, the, uh, the the bad guy. Let's go to the bad guy. The fact that we've seen such lovable, interesting, charismatic bad guys in westerns prior. To this, I'm sure. I mean, there, I'm sure there have been like ones that people that twiddled their mustache and were really uh, good. And I have to, I, I can't think of them off the top of my head because they're so bad you like them. But in this one, they're just like mirror images, distorted mirror images of Randolph Scott and you, Richard Boo and Lee Marvin and uh, Richard Boone in particular. Yeah, they're just they're just uh, so fun to uh, uh, watch, and you almost feel bad when they're uh, whatever happens to them happens you know because you want them that you want to hang around you know, or you want them to go good and that's what's so amazing about the uh, uh what's the uh uh ride lonesome where you have coburn and, and and pernell roberts actually you know do something that's a little bit different and it was kind of a nice little uh change uh so the, uh, have we had a precedent in villains like this before not really some of the anthony mann westerns with stewart think about it uh you know um, the naked spur robert ryan's the bad guy um, uh, Arthur Kennedy, a character actor nobody remembers, is in Bend of the River and, and The Man from Laramie. They're not quite there. They're really yeah. they're bad men who you know need a good bullet in the belly. But the bad men in the Burt and, and Bud and Randolph Scotts, you kind of want them to get away with it. And without going again too detailed with the tall T, you want <laughs> Richard Boone to get away in that moment. You know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And there's just something about them that they got to prove their moral superiority, which they cannot do against Randolph Scott's character. That makes these pictures 72, 74, 76 minutes. I don't think any of them are 80 minutes long. I, I just had dinner with a past guest, Kyle Smith, and he uh, the big thing he was telling me when I told him I'd watch these box sets where we were just marveling at how every single box set, every, every picture in the box set is within within 73 or 79 minutes so tight yeah i don't think there's one that's 80 minutes long i don't know off the top of my head but i don't think so so you have you know you have this you know this this wonderful uh script burke kennedy scripts you have the the characters you have scott becoming so uh uh uh, iconic at this point you know he's becoming he's turning into william s hart and 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 a mount rushmore uh look to uh his face and and the way he he carries himself and then buttaker at a great form of directing so what I thought was amazing is that when you watch these things together, uh, when I started to watch them and I finally started piecing them together, I think that there was a flurry of Jane Austen films out in the theaters. And I was seeing all these Jane Austen films back to back, you know, and I, I remember, wait a minute. That's like the Jane Austen films, uh, books are like a, a variation of a theme. And all of a sudden they go, these, these films are like a variation of a theme. You could take these things, they're like... You take a chessboard and you just kind of move the pieces a little bit different and assign them little different jobs and switch just and, and flavor them a little bit differently. 
uh, it's, it's, it was amazing. And that was kind of, that's kind of half the fun. And, and I think Scorsese at one point in one of the intros, uh, one of the features, he says something about how you kind of, they kind of think of them as a whole. Mm. You just kind of look at them as one big film or one big story, you know, and I almost treat them that way because they're almost like, and then like, you know, the, the minions, uh, can be maybe, uh, that's the, the minions for the real bad guy can maybe they either die or maybe they something happens to them or they get killed off by the boss or you know it, uh, they incarnate into the next film <laughs> the girls are different uh like that the, thing. that's good yeah reincarnate into the next film i like that <laughs> i was thinking the the way the leone characters sometimes feel like they're saying recurring characters yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I want to get to Leone at some point here. I don't know if that's a good point uh, at this point, but I, I love, and of course, I'm, Robert, I'm sure you, uh, Bud might even told you this himself uh, to you personally, where he goes, he met Sergio, and Sergio came running and goes, Bud, Bud, I sold everything from you. Uh, and when I started watching these films, and I I am obsessive of Leone, you know, I, I worship at the altar of Leone and, uh, as a kid and, and never have stopped, and when I saw these things, I go, oh, my gosh. Uh, I was thinking, oh, I see where Sergio's pulling from these things. Here he pulls this part. He pulled this part. Uh, I mean, for example, I love the opening of The Seven Men From Now where he goes and confronts the two guys. And you're not, no, you're just kind of watching this play out. And then you see how it, it gets switched on these two guys. And then it's like the scene in Once Upon Time in the West. And the opening goes where Charles goes, well, you brought two too many with the horses. You realize, wait, the table's being turned on you, not only on the bad guys, but being turned on you as a viewer. And, and without giving away the ending of Seven Men from Now, and think about that title. Yeah. The man wants to kill seven men. He doesn't know who they are, who killed his wife in a Wells Fargo holdup. I'm not giving much away because you figure that out three, four minutes into the picture. Seven men from now, then maybe he will have his peace, maybe. But but Seven Men from Now ends with a gun duel between two characters, close up, back and forth, long shot, medium shot, close up, and Leone uses that in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And, oh, yeah. And you can see where they borrowed more from Bedeker than Anthony Mann, who preceded Bedeker, or in my view, John Ford, who had a real sense of the expanse of the West. You know, I just think the Bedeker pictures... I think there's a better chance of getting a 20-year-old to watch one of them and say, I get this, than an Anthony Mann or John Ford. And and that's just semantics, and I'll probably get in trouble for something. <laughs> yeah. But, so, well, is that an interest of yours of seeing, like, because like, I, I feel bad for doing this late, literally, like, four days ago, rediscovery of Buttaker, but, like... Um, I, one of the fascinating things I found going into the the Eastwood documentary was all the Quentin Tarantino antecedents, like the fact that the Bud character is named in Kill Bill, and you could start telling like, uh, "Whoa, there, Audie Murphy from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood," and just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, what you just said it is Shane's an uh, example of this. I'm not the 20 year old anymore. Well, today. I know you're, but you, you feel that. 20 year olds to me. I, but uh, I'm sure I you're do. You're a young man. Everyone's a young man too. <laughs> so, but but Shane, how old are you? Uh, I am going to turn 40 in a few months. 
So but, I'm, but, I'm halfway to your point. But Robert, on the way over here, I was still thinking, I was still kind of ambivalent about, I want to go, I wonder if Shane really liked these films or not. And to your point, when I was 20, I was a <laughs> shitty scoddler about, like, I don't want to watch this 50s conformist. Randolph Scott. Yeah. <laughs> Randolph Scott, the B version of John Wayne. <laughs> think of anything he made before 1955. There's a few interesting pictures in there. But suddenly the guy's in his late 50s and he hits on something. And suddenly, you know, I just thought about this today. I was just writing like Randolph Scott, this reserved, you know, born in Virginia, uh, raised in North Carolina, 1898, served in World War One as a forward observer. Not an easy job when you're trying to pinpoint how to land the artillery and the German snipers are trying to kill you. The man says almost nothing about himself in interviews. The man is reserved. He's not particularly funny. He's got some light comic edge here and there. But suddenly, this reserve, you know, you just watch his eyes and he's got a pain. He's This is a man in pain. And a man in pain can lash out and kill. And Randolph Scott does it in a way that John Wayne, arguably a better actor and certainly a bigger box office draw, just doesn't pull it together for me. Uh you know, I just think Randolph Scott hit it perfectly in these five or six pictures and then really topped it with Ride the High Country with Sam Peckinpah. You mentioned Ride the High Country. I think that was a gateway movie. I, I watched Ride the High Country with about, about six months well, ago. Well, it's interesting going that because I was about Ride the High Country to me is like the coda. It's interesting. You kind of got to, if you want to kind of go, you can start with the Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart cycle. And of course, you have to watch Men of the West. It's too bad Stewart wasn't in there instead of Cooper. Oh, man, want... are we in agreement? We are in agreement. That's perfect. <laughs> but you kind of watch this cycle and you kind of like, you, you get kind of uh, into the psychotic, intense Western era arena that uh, Anthony kind of brought and Jimmy Stewart brought to it. And then you, then as they end, Butterker and Burt Kennedy and Randolph Scott pick up the baton. And they run with it, and it's so, and it's even better, and it's even more sparse and more intense, and wonderful, and and aesthetically pleasing in some ways. I kind of agree. I kind of like the sparseness, and the Anthony Mann's got the you know the big giant landscapes, and then uh, when they end their cycle, Sam comes along, and Sam puts a little coda, puts a little dot to the whole thing, and says, and and then Sam's like the gateway, as using the word gateway, Shane, yeah. from that uh, that that period of Western to the modern. A period of western that's going to for you know the major dundee and wild bunch and everybody else does after that but it's kind of like it's kind of like the switch the switching film you know one of my favorite stories in the intro for your book is the peck and paul uh Bedeker exchange that ends your intro where like do you want do you want to talk about this robert well you know Bedeker and and and, and peck and paul overlapped with the same lover in mexico <laughs> so while Okay, Sam, I don't think that was in the book, but <laughs> which Sam is trying to get his career together while Bud's is coming to an end because after Bud Bedeker made the Randolph Scott pictures, quickly he went to Mexico to make a movie about Carlos Aruza, a bullfighter, and basically got lost down there for ten years, mental asylum, jail, broke, lost his career. Nobody knew who the hell he was, and nobody wanted him back. But he and Sam knew each other, and probably had that respect that one imagines. Hemingway and Fitzgerald had back in the 20s and 30s with a rising star and a fading, you know, former star 
overlapping. Um, and, you know, Sam, you know, saying that, Bud, you know, you know, nobody's ever heard of me. Nobody knows my movies, but they, they know your movies. They've seen them and they know them. Um, and, and, and it was interesting because by that point, you know, Sam, look at this stuff in the 60s. You know, you're talking Ride the High Country, 62, Major Dundee, which Ted mentioned, 65. Finally, The Wild Bunch, 69. So basically a decade with three, there's another one in there, four Sam Peckinpah movies. And Bud, by that time, you know, knocked off 20 pictures in the 50s. The times had changed. So, you know, Peckinpah does pick up the baton. And so does, to some degree, Leone, I think. Don't you agree, Ted? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't think Bud, I don't think Sam could have done The Wild Bunch without Sergio's uh, success. I don't know if we, we would have had The Wild Bunch. And, right. And the, so... And the fact that Sam, that Sam used Randolph Scott as well as Joel McRae, who Bud never worked with, although the first Burt Kennedy script, The Seven Men from Now, was sent to Joel McRae before Randolph Scott, and McRae turned it down. Uh, Joel McRae is another name most people don't know. He was probably a more natural, better light comedian than Scott, but his movies in the 50s have gotten really pedestrian. Um, where Scott got more and more interesting with these darker characters. I will say we're planning on doing a Preston Sturges uh, uh, episode soon because there's a Preston Sturges series on the Criterion channel right now. And and McRae is very good with Sturges. So McRae finds his director in Preston Sturges, a comic director, mostly of the war years, the 30s, who, as, as McRae later says, you know, when Preston Sturges stopped writing for me, Nobody really wrote for me anymore. Sturgis' career falls apart late 40s. McRae switches to Westerns and they don't work together again. But Sturgis' retrospective is definitely worth it. The man was brilliant. Um, and so McRae found his his director in Sturgis, but the two of them, you know, studio system, et cetera, they pretty much separated by 45. So, you know, he didn't have that Anthony Mann that Stewart had. He didn't have Hitchcock. And another side note real quickly. Those were the days when an actor's reputation could be made on a director. You know, Humphrey Bogart, I like. Humphrey Bogart is John Huston and Howard Hawks and Michael Cortez. Uh, Wayne is pretty much John Ford and Howard Hawks, real bravo, and uh, to some degree, Henry Hathaway. And, and Randolph Scott is pretty much Bud Bedecker, like James Stewart is Anthony Mann, although Stewart also had Hitchcock. So if you had a couple of these name directors who were really good, you could really parlay that into a reputation that lasts today. But I'm not sure that Randolph Scott's reputation means a lot today. You know, um, some, what, 30, 35 years after his death. Uh, he, like I said, he's the B-side of John Wayne, but I often mm -hmm. find it more interesting because of what he doesn't do. Whereas Wayne, I know what he's going to do. Yeah. Most of the time. Um. I we're we're pretty far in, and I actually wanted to go back and do a chronological what Buttaker did after leaving Evansville. Um, so he went to Culver Academy, which I guess is near uh, Chicago, and from there, I guess he the he met one of the sons of the producers of the Three Stooges. Uh, film. No, Lauren Hardy, Hal Roach Jr. Hal Roach Jr. And, and he had an injury too in, in college. Uh, in he sports. went to Ohio State. Sorry, he went to Ohio State from there. Right. And then he took a road trip in the days when people did this to Mexico with a friend who I think is Tom Joy, J-O-Y-E. If I'm getting it wrong, forgive me. I haven't looked at my own book in a while. Um, 
and it was a lark and he falls in love with an older woman who's runs a bunch of bordellos and she takes him to bullfighting and he writes about it in his autobiography um when in disgrace you know the love of watching this life and death struggle between a man and a bull we all know the bulls get the wrong end of the stick most of the time here although they did you know kill men and they did gore them they gored peckinpah pardon me Bedeker. And he wants to be a bullfighter. So he becomes an American bullfighter in Mexico in the late 30s before World War II. He gets scored in the ass, which, you know, he's proud to show off to anybody who wants to see. He'll drop his pants. I love that detail in your book, by the way. And, and, and his mom says, you're not going to do this. You know, um, you went to you went to Culver with Hal Roach Jr., the son of Hal Roach, who made comedies that, again, I don't know. I'm glad Ted brought this up. Like. I don't know if Laurel and Hardy and our gang, also known as the Little Rascals, are as well known as the Three Stooges, who were over at Columbia, by the way, where Bud went to work. Um, and she says, this isn't going to happen. You're going into the movie business. And so by 1939-40, you know, this uh, not quite 25-year-old is assistant director on mostly B-movies that we've forgotten, you know, uh, at Hal Roach, later at Columbia. And he gets a job as an advisor on a 1941 20th century Fox picture called Blood and Sand about a bullfighter played by a guy named Tyrone Power, another name I don't know that resonates today. He died in the late 50s of a heart attack on a movie set. And suddenly, you know, Bud's in and, and now he's making B-movies in Columbia. So that's pretty much the progression from getting out of high school at 34 to starting to direct movies at Columbia Pictures around 44. Um, do we need to talk about Bullfighter and the Lady and the John Ford recut? I think that's good. I mean, you know, because Bud makes 10 movies of no particular importance from 44 to 50, including at some really cheap studios. And we don't, again, today we don't say that's a cheap studio. We don't say, I know Ted knows this. We don't say PRC. <laughs> uh, producers, producers Releasing Corporation, which they called Pretty Rotten Crap. Oh, okay. okay. We don't say Monogram. Monogram was a really cheap studio. Lippert was a cheap studio. They were cheap. Republic, where Roy Rogers was, was definitely several rungs down from a Universal. Or Republic seems to have survived a lot just because of John Ford a little. It does, but... and John Wayne, who was under contract. So and of course, and, and Orson Welles, uh, and uh, it's Macbeth. Orson does Macbeth in Republic. Got <laughs> So, so Bud finally gets a chance to to tell his own story called Bullfighter and the Lady about an American who goes to Mexico, falls in love with bullfighting, starts to fight the bulls, loses a good friend. And he manages to get through connections, John Wayne, who's starting to produce for himself, even as he acts in movies, to agree to try to take the picture to Republic, where Wayne was under contract, to get them to produce on a limited budget, you know, four hundred thousand. We can't we can't even imagine that today. Well, guerrilla filmmakers do it for forty grand, four grand today, Jesus. So um, he takes the story to Republic. They let Bud have creative control. Even as Wayne is trying to oversee it, it's a B-level cast. The best name in it is a guy named Robert Stack, who in the 60s was in the Untouchables TV series. And later, if I'm remembering, Unsolved Mysteries in the 80s and 90s. Which is where someone my age would have known him from. Or from Airplane. You probably know him from Airplane. I do know him from (laughs) Airplane, but Unsolved Mysteries is is probably more. He's at the airport, right, trying to bring everybody in. Um, But... You know, this picture suddenly shows that Bud knows how to direct. And his name, Oscar Buttaker, is how he was born. Oscar Buttaker Jr., was it? Right. He changes it to Bud Buttaker. Then he says, 
I never made a movie before this where I wanted my name on it. So now he's Bud Bedeker. And it was a pretty, it still holds up pretty well. It's a pretty good movie. Um, and it's got two men at opposite sides, sort of, of the equation, not quite good guy, bad guy. And it's got an arena and it's got an enemy in the bulls. So there are just hints of what's going to come up with Randolph Scott, Burt Kennedy, five, six years later um, in the picture. And it, it gets an Oscar nomination for best story. It didn't win. And uh, it's still, it's a really good picture that holds up pretty darn well, but I don't know how it would play today, even in the uncut version. So it got restored in like the mid eighties. Uh, I mean, what do, what do you guys both, I mean, I, 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 I got a feeling, Robert, I know what you, you, I mean, you, you, the, the restored version is obviously the masterpiece to you or the better version. Cause Scorsese flat out calls it a masterpiece. Yeah. Restored I, version. Bud always thought it was like a masterpiece. I think it's a pretty damn good picture. You, oh wait, you said it was slight, like it was great, but like could probably still use a little editing. Yeah. There were still problems with it when you watch it, but it carries you along watching a man wanting to face death. You know, wanting to face none of it. We don't want to get in a ring with a bull. None of us. I mean, you know, who would? We, we you know, none. You, the three of us don't want to be chased by wild dogs when we're going home tonight. You know, drunk from the bar, and suddenly three dogs chase us. You know, um, so he captures that, and suddenly you see that Bud was good at this life and death. Life. Do you want to? Do you want to tell that anecdote? I, I'm sorry to regurgitate a lot of the great Buttaker anecdotes that he probably said forever and ever. But what he told Harry Cohn whenever he told off Harry Cohn about uh, tell me everything about bullfighting. Well, that's Bud again. Like here's here's what hurt hurt Bud's career. You're talking about a career that went from about 44 to 1960, 15 years. Could he have segued into a Peck and Paw, an American version of Leone? had he not disappeared into Mexico. But he was, for better and worse, like we all want to be, his own man. He didn't want to be tied to his studio. So he's an assistant director on a Columbia picture. We're talking 43, 42, 43. And Harry Cohn is the, the head of Columbia Pictures, where the Three Stooges were. And uh, Cohn comes down on the set to, to, to tell Bud, who's an assistant director, you know, I want to see the director, George Stevens in this case, if we remember him, it's... Is this more the merrier or more, the more the merrier and 10 okay. years later, uh, Stevens will make Shane. There you go, Shane. Um, yeah. Will... The movie I'm named for. Cool. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and you know, uh, Bud tries to explain to Cone, who was a tough guy. Look, Mr. Cone. And, you know, Cone says something like, listen, you son of a bitch. When I tell you to do something, go do it. And Bud just says, you know, you listen, you son of a bitch. I'm not going to do anything you tell me to do. I've been knocked down by bulls. I've been chased by bulls. You can't do anything but fire me. So go F yourself pretty much. And he knows he's fired when Cone calls him up in the office later in the day. But Cone likes it. He likes that energy. He says, okay, you're going to be this gutsy guy. I'm going to make you a director. And he gives him some B movies, none of which are too memorable to make between 44 and 45 before Bud goes into the Navy. Uh, But he had that aura of, you know, go fuck yourself. And, and to some degree, he fucked himself because he didn't get work anymore in the '60s. Because of that, he became he became Randolph Scott, sort of like I got a job to do, get out of my way, and I don't care what happens to you. And what happened was he disappeared into Mexico, could never redeem himself. I suspect he lived a pretty happy life up to his death in 2001. I, I suspect he said, "I'm my own man," and we can't we can't always do that. That's why we like westerns. 
you know, we think they're their own men, but they're actors playing these parts. Bud, Bud was pretty much it. I found it fascinating. You pointed out that Buttaker seemed like a guy who was easily bored. And I mean, you just, you, you just distinguish his career into like five points. And, um, I, I, I guess, I mean, Aruza is the one I'm most interested. Have you got, obviously Robert, you've seen it. Ted, have you seen it? Uh, I have a VHS unwatched VHS copy of it. I'm going to have to go in to see it. But before we go, before we get to Aruza, okay. let's go back into the other Matador film. Have you seen, that's another one I haven't seen. Uh, have you, uh, it's hard to track down. The Anthony Quinn, the Magnificent Matador. Have you seen yeah, that one? Very mediocre. It was one of only maybe three movies when I was writing the book, the films of Bud Becker. I saw them all. I tracked one down to the um, Library of Congress. I flew to Washington, D.C. to watch a comedy called A Guy, A Gal, and a Pal. That's the sort of titles they gave movies in 1944. Um, so I tracked them all down. And, and at the time, you know, we're going back. Let me see. The book came out in 18. So probably we're going back to see, we're going back five years, Ted. I found The Magnificent Matador on YouTube. I oh, don't really? Know, I don't know if it's there anymore. That doesn't sound shocking. And I found it. Killer Shark, 1950. Don't watch it. Killer Shark was the movie I wanted to ask you about so much. Roddy McDowell, The Jaws. Uh, right, right, right. And, and I found a Boston Blackie. Boston Blackie was a character in 1940s movies who Bud directed one of them. So I found like three of them on YouTube. And The Magnificent Matador, 1955, is this strange in-between bullfighter and the lady in Arusa Matador story that is so hokey, so melodramatic. Bud didn't think it was good. Anthony Quinn, Maureen O'Hara, um, it's just not good. I don't know how else to say it. Like, I wouldn't go out of my way. Okay, well, you know, because it gets lumped, you know, when we think of Vedica, we think of the, the Matador, so you get you have the three Matador films. So now let's get to Aruza, uh, which, like I said, I have not seen. Shane hasn't seen it. it uh, I'm really curious how this movie plays. So this is the movie where Aruza died. I mean, uh, this is an eight-year in-the-making movie, I mean, and he died in the middle of it, so they had to turn it into a documentary. Well, I, I was it was it. I mean, or was it? I thought it, it's sort of like he was trying to make some kind of weird quasi documentary. It's sort of fiction, sort of documentary because he they shot real bullfights. And he lost a wife. Like a few, at the very beginning be of it, or something. It's just a something of the biggest weird. You know, ten years of his life. You know, it, it started in '58 with a script while he's shooting Randolph Scott movies, and it finally premieres. Again, I don't have the dates in front of me. I'm supposed to be the expert, but around 72, so 14 years. Doesn't it play at Cannes or something like that? What's that? It plays at Cannes or something, doesn't it? Right. It plays big film festivals, but it doesn't matter. Like, Bud Bedecker's been gone to work on a semi-documentary with some fictional scene shot about a bullfighter who he thinks the world of, who is now taken to horseback to fight the bulls in his later career. And the bullfighting scenes, you know, Bud's filmmaking comes through. He gets pits dug in the arena and he knows where the bulls are going to go and he knows where the horses are going to go and he knows where Randolph Scott, who is now Carlos of Ruza, a real life matador, kind of knows where they're going to go. But he's ready for the improvisation that came out of all those movies making them with Burt Kennedy, only he doesn't have that Burt Kennedy script. And those bullfighting scenes are fantastic, but then they're offset by scenes of Aruza's wife 
aging. The kids are aging from five and six to like 15 and 16. <laughs> Arusa's killed in a car accident in 66. Bud's almost Less laughter. Um, he's got to shoot around that. To his credit, he didn't give up on the movie. And to his credit, the movie is pretty visually stimulating. But dot, dot, dot a documentary slash semi-documentary shot in an old style by a guy who left Hollywood roughly 61 as the studio system is falling apart, comes back 10 years later, couldn't, couldn't possibly restore his career. And there was really not much after that, but is it worth watching? Sure. Especially if you like the Randolph Scott movies. I have, um, behind me, I have a, a VHS, uh, some footage from, um, um, Orson Welles shooting a bullfight too. It just seems like bullfights. Uh, you mentioned Hemingway earlier, like seemed to engulf a few filmmakers in the sixties and, and Butterker would, Butterker would have been in high position to have done a, a fictionalized version of it. But I mean, that's rough. I mean, just eight years for a filmmaker to, is it really, is it just, it's always framed that this is the movie that destroyed him, but was it also the fact just Scott retired, Randolph Scott retired? Like, and he just, he went off on a, a different track at that point. Yeah, like the teamwork that Ted talked about. Burt Kennedy is writing these scripts. He wants to direct. And he, he stumbles a little bit. Um, but he does direct. Um, Randolph Scott, you know, born in 1898. He's ready by 1960. The guy invested, like, perfectly. He was a multimillionaire. He was a $50 million millionaire, which, you know, we may not think that's much today. I do. I could go for 50 bucks here on my two bedroom <laughs> Santa Fe. If each of you send me $10 in the mail, I'll be happy. So, um, and it's tax free. Um, By the way, if you want to send $10 in the mail to both of us, we'll be equally as happy. Let's do it that way. And that, wait a minute, <laughs> then we break even and we waste. Wait a minute. This isn't working out. Like I pictured it. That's right. I'll double cross it. Crisscross. Okay. <laughs> Scott, he's ready to quit. He's done. The studio system's over. Burt Kennedy wants to direct and Bud wants to go do this picture. And that's Bud's career, like a few years at Columbia, a couple of years at Monogram. He does one at Republic. He signs with Universal. We didn't have to talk about that much, but he makes nine movies at Universal in the early 50s, including one with Audie Murphy, a couple with Rock Hudson, Robert Ryan, Van Heflin, Glenn Ford. Um, they're, they're it was deep. impressive to do one with Glenn Ford. Yeah, yeah. I watched, I watched. speaking of which, I did watch the wing of the, uh, I got the, the recent Blu-ray uh release of wings of the hawk and uh watched it in preparation for tonight and uh yeah it's just like okay it's just uh average uh van heffel julie adams and the uh, only thing i thought uh do you uh recall is i thought there was one moment i thought okay this is a nice little tidbit where the uh they they shoot uh, the the uh, they shoot the uh, peasants in the village and then and, and, and butterker chooses to shoot through a gate uh, and you see the bodies fall. I and, think he shoots it through the basement window. Yes, basement window, and it's got a gate of you know the, yeah. the window. Yeah, one of the characters watches his mom get shot. Right, and I think okay, there that kind of came alive right there. But for the most part, it's you know your typical romance, typical writing, typical you know character stock characterization, and it, and it just stands such in contrast to what Bert pulled out with him with those guys when they did the the cycle, the you know. Scott cycle. Yeah, the Universal Nine or nine of them, they should probably come out in a DVD set. But a couple of them are definitely well above average. A couple are below. But that's it. He was a studio director in the days when guys made it was mostly men. They made four movies a year. 
they were lined up. You know, you're going to shoot a, a Western today. You're going to do a war movie. Abbott and Costello are on the lot. You're going to do an Abbott and Costello movie. And they did it. And, and a lot of those guys didn't really make names for themselves. And I often wonder if Bud had not hooked up with John Wayne and Burt Kennedy, whether he would have made that name. What, what would have become of him as soon as 55, 56 had he not made those films? Because those universal movies, they do have flashes of originality, humor, good action scenes. I think there's a lot of good action in that picture. Um, but they don't stand out as having depth. Yes, yes, I agree. I got. I have a Red Ball Express up uh, in my stack to watch uh, here shortly. I'll have to uh, plow through that with Jeff Chandler. Yeah, yeah. Let me touch on that real fast. It's about the only movie Bud made about an ensemble. It's an Army Corps. They got a job to do. And he later said, I didn't like it. His movies are about a guy or two hmm. guys trying to get a job done. And I think he did that very, very well. So in that one ensemble movie, I'd be curious what you think of it, World War II picture. Um, he sort of loses track because he's got too many guys to follow. <laughs> one of the reoccurring things I noticed in the movies I watched was it felt like, I mean, granted, I was watching very limited amount of movies with Randolph Scott, but it seemed like there was a speech of a man's got to do fill in the blank. There was a lot of a man's got to do something speeches. Uh, uh, here, here's a problem with Burt Kennedy's writing. He recycled from himself fast. <laughs> so the first film shot in 55, or at least 56, the last one shot in 59, 60. And you're going to hear a man needs a reason to ride this country. You've got a reason. You're going to hear, you know. Um, you can't ride around that, or isn't it? Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. You can't ride around this. You can't ride yeah. around me. Um, you're going to hear, I sure hate to go up against you. And there, he, Bert is just repeating from himself. And later on, Bert will keep repeating when he's done with Bud. He makes a not good picture called Return of the Seven, a sequel to The Magnificent Seven, which is bad. And he gives a whole scene out of most of the other Randolph Scott pictures. He's using that dialogue. Um, he just kept borrowing from himself. So, But the theme was there, you know, that you got a job to do. And the Randolph Scott character often doesn't want to have to kill the bad guy because the bad guy is not really who he's after. The seven men from now, without again giving too much away, it's not Lee Marvin. When we meet Lee Marvin, he's not one of the seven, but he's going to get in between Randolph Scott and the seven. And Randolph Scott's got to say, Jesus, I got to kill this guy first before I get to them. So that's what I think is a beauty of all these pictures. Like, I didn't think you were going to be the rock, but I'm going to roll you out of the Again, it's a chess piece scenario. You got, you got Randolph Scott by you know the stalwart. I got to do what I got to do. You have the the seven guys, but then you have Lee Marvin and his sidekick. Then you have the woman and the weak man, because there is a there's a there's two or three weak men throughout these films. And then you have the treasure, the money itself is another item. And all and you're just shuffling them around. In this in this film, it's it's so fun, and then and of course then you start playing the variations. But getting back to the theme, you, uh, Robert, about you know a man's got to do what he's got to do. That's why I think Ride the High Country is so beautiful because it's a subnation. Because mm. I want to I want to go to my house justified, and it's like it, it, that it just, line. It just yeah, that's the line kind of sums up the whole cycle of the the Buttercup Scott. Mm. And it's, it's Sam Peckinpah who wrote most of that script in a way, paying homage to Bedecker, although I don't know that he knew that. And it's Randolph Scott, who knew, who watched through all these movies, man, Lee Marvin, 
Richard Boone, Parnell Roberts, James Coburn. You're kind of stealing the movie away from me. <laughs> what if I play the bad guy and it's Randolph Scott as a bad guy and he's really good. He's learned. Yeah, he's got he's kind of the funky, uh, interesting, funky uh, bad guy as opposed to the, the and Joe plays his part in the, uh, that he played in the cycle. I got two basic uh, Bud Bedecker virgin questions. Uh, one, did he ever have a high budget? What was his high budgets? No, I mean, we think about budgets today in the studio system of the 30s, 40s, and the 50s, the cliched million-dollar movie. That was an A movie. So if you had a budget of $920,000, I call it a B plus. You're so close. Bud never had a million dollars. He had, okay. at the Universal Pictures, pushed 900 grand. The, the Randolph Scots were around a half million. Three weeks, 18 days. They worked on Saturdays, Sundays off. Um, and if he went over to Warner Brothers, he got an extra week and maybe an extra 100 grand on the budget. And I don't think his his director's salary topped 30 grand. I was fat. I think it was the universal period you described in the book. I think it was where he was, I forget how long period wise it was, but it was the phrase you used the only Saturday or was it Sundays off or Saturdays off was Sundays were the day off. I, I've worked that schedule on limited basis, basis. And it's just, it's brutal. It, it really is just because the thing is on a create in a, any creative form, you need that day off just because you need to not think about what you're thinking about just to let your brain, your subconscious figure some stuff out while you relax. But that's how they made these movies. They, Randolph Scott and his partner, Harry Joe Brown, they were the producers of the Columbia pictures. They had this down 18 days. We cast it perfectly. People know their lines. Two or three, two or three rehearsals, two or three shots. Let's do it. And we're not going to waste the light. And um, five hundred grand. Let's do it. And, and you know, five hundred grand movie in fifty six, fifty seven. Worldwide, westerns were so big in Europe pre Leone, pre Spaghetti Western. You know, that they could make four million. And the deal with Columbia Pictures was we'll go 50-50 on the costs and 50-50 on the, on the profits. And so Randolph Scott and Harry Joe Brown, the producers, just made $2 million for three weeks of work, you know, with limited Randolph Scott falling off a horse and maybe doing a little <sighs> throwing a fist here or there, which he did still did pretty well at that age. Um, Your stuntman's going to fall into a trough of water, but you have to get out of the water. Yeah, but you see a shot. You haven't watched Ride Lonesome yet. Where Randolph Scott at 61 jumps a wall with a horse and Bud talked him into doing it. And you watch it and you're like, that's Randolph Scott. He's, he's a good horseman, but you know, I, I'm 60. I don't want to be on a horse. I, I, I don't, my dog's going to come attack me in a minute. Like I can't handle that stuff. My bones are brittle. It's even worse than that. I saw that when I was 20, just scoffed at it. And now at 40, I'm going to rewatch it. Um, <laughs> I want to get another... more from you after you watch it. Send me an email. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking about rewatching it tonight. Renown. Or what is what is the basis of the the of the company? The the name. What was what was it named for? That the majority of the Scott uh, Butterker movies for. Sure. So Randolph Scott breaks into movies late silent era. B movies in the 30s, supporting part in Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musicals. 
starts to become like a star about World War II, realizes a lot of his non-Westerns aren't that hot. He switches totally to Western around 46, 47, when the Western movie's still hot. And he hooks up with a guy named Harry Joe Brown, who he worked on a couple other pictures with, to make their own company called Producers Actors. Um, and it was Brown and Scott. But by the time they got to make the Bud Bedecker pictures, the studio system had changed so much that basically they um, got rid of that name and came up with Renown, Ryan, R-A-N for Randolph Scott, Alan for Harry Joe Brown. So the beginning of Randolph Scott's name, the end of Harry Joe Brown's name. So they called him the Okay. Even though Seven Men from Now was made for Warner Brothers and John Wayne and Batjack. But they're the renowned cycle of five Columbia pictures that followed the Warner Brothers picture because of that. Harry Joe Brown pretty much, you know, tried to stay in the business without any success after these movies. Uh, but he was pretty much done by the end of the 60s. Okay. I, was it was it Buchanan Rides Alone wasn't in the cycle? Or one of the things on the box set wasn't on the cycle that I watched? Uh, no, they're, no, they're on the cycle. I mean, they don't have the name. Or I mean, they, they became a shortcut for all of them. Okay. They don't, they would not, they don't all have, only two of them have that, technically that title. Right. Oh, Ted okay. Is right. Ted is right. Of the five Columbias, two were called Renown, but film historians in the 60s who started falling in love with Bedecker Scott Kennedy started calling them the Renown Cycle, and they remain that way. Okay. Yeah, I just, it was, and I mean, I, I, I would, uh, let's, it looks like by piecing this together that we uh, have Andrew Saris is the one that started kind of the, the ball rolling. I'm glad you brought it. Andrew Saris was the, the big issue I wanted to uh, bring up. Uh, with the Yes All Tourism, his book, well, his article, and then his uh, book that followed it. And uh, uh, that's what's, what's interesting going, uh, this is just a real personal side note, Robert. I might You might find this interesting or not. Do you, are you familiar with a book called A Pictorial History of Westerns by Michael Parkinson and Clyde Jeevens? Yes, but I don't have it in my own collection. I'm looking at all my movie books in front of me, but I know it. Yeah, I had that book when I and it it was one of those like uh, goes straight to the discount bin. It has no retail price on it, and uh, copyright seventy two. And I remember having that in grade school, and I and it, I just laugh at myself, and I just shake you had my that head. in grade school. In grade school, wow! I had this book in grade school because there was a chapter on spaghetti westerns. And I was just so, you know, obsessive about these Leone films. You know, uh, I mean, I had to, to the extent that I even had, a, you know, I think I said this in the other podcast. I had a lady make a poncho for my G.I. Joe. So the G.I. Joe could wear a poncho. Like, I thought they had no name. That's how crazy I was. And um, so this book, I, I, it was like one of the few things I, could, I, I came across that had talked about Sergio and those movies. I looked at, as, as I got older and dug it up and looked at it, it's like, the whole Buttercross cycle stuff is in this book and the critical take on it. And I was totally, you know, uh, had a blind eye to it for a long time till I got that uh, lost, uh, the, the Jim Kitts's book. And then when the Jim Kitts's book came in, that kind of started the whole, uh, what I, where I'm at now with the cycle. Horizons West is the book named after a Bedecker movie that's average, a little better than average, made it universal. Yeah, yeah is it, didn't, didn't somebody say it was a great title, not weak film or something? But go ahead, what were you, you going to say? The rediscovery of Bedeker starts as he comes back from Mexico, 69-70. He's making a really low-budget movie with Audie Murphy called The Time for Dying, which is of interest if you like Bedeker, but not really otherwise. And Really? Because I was really curious about this movie. Well, I just watched it for the first time. What do you think? <laughs> 
Uh, you're right. It is there. I, 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 I just found out there's a really nice remastered copy out there on DVD from Film Movement. Right. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to get that. I watched the really crappy DVD-R. This this is a forgotten Don Siegel movie, or no? This is the one that Bedeker did after he got back, and he did it with Audie Murphy. Audie was in, had money problems. And... What's the one that Don Siegel took over for? Two mules for Sister Sarah. Well, that's a that's a whole different that's a whole different enchilada. How is that? Well, uh, Robert, you want to tackle that one? Uh, uh, well, two mules is the word <laughs> adequate is kind. <laughs> it's claiming I switched Shirley MacLaine, gunman in Mexico, prostitute, but she's not really a prostitute. She's a nun. She's a I can't remember. Bedeker came up with the story. He was trying to regain his stature at Universal. But they bought him out and gave it to Don Siegel, and Bud hated the movie, and uh, nobody really likes the movie. It's okay. It's a mishmash. It's and yeah, yeah, and it, it's 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 watchable. You got more. It's it, what's so bizarre is like when you look at it, you go a Buttercrust story, Morricone soundtrack, Don Siegel directing, Clint Eastwood in it. What could go wrong? I mean, but it's it's uh, it doesn't. Uh, it's the the credits are more interesting than the actual project. Now, of course, you know originally that was supposed to be Elizabeth Taylor, because on Where Eagles Dare, you know uh, he's hanging out with Richard Burton, and they're supposed to to uh, do a film together. And then Elizabeth uh, drops out, and Shirley MacLaine uh, takes over in that part. But getting back to Time for Dying, um, sorry, uh, I I thought I thought there was some interesting the the, the whole Judge Roy Bean stuff, and uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, elements. The kid, oh, how he wants to become a bounty hunter. You know, they actually see he's not doing it for the money. Uh, uh, it's kind of a strange, interesting origin of a bounty hunter. You're watching uh, the, uh, the 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 whole randomness of the killers that he encounters at the beginning of the film that come back at the end of the film. Billy Pilgrim or whatever his name is, and and some of the staging. Uh, but then again, the budget is just, and the music just really kills it. The soundtrack is just one of those where it really drags, really makes uh, mince meat of the over aesthetics of the film. And most of the actors are not up to the Randolph Scott. Ensemble, yes. You know, Audie Murphy has a nice cameo as, as an aging Jesse James. It's a nice little cameo, but. Um, but it, it, and it doesn't, look, look, doesn't even look like Jesse James at all, the way we, we know how he, well, maybe a black coat. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. It was a weird. I just thought it was kind of a strange uh, outfit for and Jesse being in Arizona or I don't know how far west that the James right. Gang got. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know. So. Yeah. But uh, but by that time, Bud's career is over. But the rediscovery of his movies, as Randolph Scott movies, was coming back into the light. And now they're on TV, and then Bud starts playing the film festival circuit. You know, from I don't know the seventies, certainly by the eighties the 80s the 90s until his death uh yeah it's a pretty good gig because that's what that's what killed us from not i we figured maybe he would uh i don't know if he would cut us a, a budget break because he's coming to his hometown and he still had relatives alive there was a i was gonna say uh, do you know if he ever came back to visit evansville well not that i know of but he had an aunt uh i think it was an aunt uh still alive and we were actually going to bring her to the right lonesome showing but she wasn't feeling too well um, but uh, we... when, I, when I was doing the research on the uh, hardware store, the hardware store supposedly uh, had river damage in 1941, the Main Street one, but the building kept going forever. It was basically the Evansville docks all the way through the 60s. So I don't know how long. Or Oscar Butteker died in like Santa Monica, didn't he? His Bud's parents both died in the 50s. So by then, okay. I imagine it had been turned over to. Uh... 
Bud was adopted, you know, somebody else took it over. And what happened to it after that, I don't know. But, okay. but so, Ted, did you try to get Bud and was the price too high? Yeah, like I was saying, we just, uh, this is a college state university and it didn't have the, we, we were trying, we actually tried a fundraiser, but it was just his cost was too high for us. And, and, and uh, the professor talked to him on the phone. Of course, the sad thing is he gave me Bud's phone number. And I could have called Bud. And you I never told me that part. I have it. It's in my address book. And I, I could have called Bud. And Do you want to, to call Bud Bedecker's dead voicemail right now? <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, I did not take advantage of the phone number. Uh, I don't know if I, I would have if he would, would have received me or not, Robert. I don't uh, a, a guy calling him out of the cold blue, a fan. But, uh, yeah, it was mainly, if he was getting that kind of good scratch from doing those gigs, the festival gigs, that's probably... I can see why he could really have a nice living uh, going from a festival to festival and talk to talk and lectures. Yeah. And, stuff. and he was a great talker. He was a great presenter. He was a great actor. And he was honest about his movies. He knew which ones were not good. He knew which ones were good. And he loved talking about them. And that was a good sign. Yeah. It, it, the, the, that aspect of him, it, like you said, the, the stories, what is the truth and what isn't. It's, it's kind of interesting because in one aspect, it's refreshing you seem to be like getting the the look behind the scenes that you don't get. You, you John Ford or Clint or some of these guys are so they do not they want they don't want to reveal their cards. You know that you can just see them not wanting to reveal it. Where Buzz just like throwing them out there, and and then but then you go you but you have to take it with a grain of salt. That's the, the problem because you don't know if some of them are just sound good. For, they they sound too good to be true uh, in some ways. Yeah, he. I'm not gonna again. I'm not gonna give away Ride Lonesome, but he loved to tell a story about changing the ending to Ride Lonesome on the set with a day to go. But you read the final script, which was in their hands when they started the movie, and it's exactly what's there. And when you watch the movie, you say, "Why?" It makes no sense that he would have changed it. But he told the story, which we can talk about offline sometimes about how how he changed the final scene of the movie, but he really didn't. Um, you know, and in reading the scripts, like Comanche Station script, which is the last of the series, you see how much Bud added to it because there's a scene where Randolph Scott and Claude Aikens playing the bad guy, um, you know, are trying to outrun some Comanches. And it's written where they jump in the rocks with a couple rifles and they shoot them down. But you watch the movie play out and Randolph Scott falls off his horse and he's fighting one of the Comanches and uh, another Comanche aims an arrow and Randolph Scott turns the other Comanche towards him and the Comanche gets the arrow in the back and then Randolph Scott takes his saddle and throws it at a guy and you're like, none of that's in the script. So you know that was Bud saying, come on, we can do better than this. We're out here in Lone Pine. Let's, Jesus Christ, come on. (laughs) Coming up with ideas, guys. How are we going to make this scene better? So he was capable of doing that, but I think he was also capable of taking credit away from Bert or saying, well, I made the ending this way. But in fact, you know, a lot of them are, are written exactly as, as Bert wrote them. I got two things I want to wind down on. One's the observation of the uh, in the at the end of the Eastwood documentary of him uh, that sequence at the very end of the documentary with him with two canes uh, showing off these kids getting off buses and him directing the kids. Him showing like here's the where I want the camera at. Him telling the kids don't look at the camera, walk this way. And then after they walk their way, by the way, we're going to get the reverse angle on the other end of that to go that late in life to that near death to basically being like, I need to pictorially divide the visual day to day of my life. 
is fascinating for a man. Something to have learned so thoroughly through the 40s and 50s that even 20 years out of practice, he's still doing up until almost to the day he dies was just so fascinating to me. It's a good point. I don't have to say much more about it. He had some kids visiting the ranch in Ramona. He was about 85 for the documentary. Uh, um, uh, a Man Can Do That is the name of the documentary. It's based on a, a sentence from Seven Men From Now. And uh, he still had it. The director and him was like, I'm going to direct these kids, even though it wasn't his movie. <laughs> um, the last question I have for both you two, actually, is, both of you two, is a pretty generic one I've had is just the basic hypothetical. If all things would have worked out, what would have happened? If Buttaker had continued the momentum after the end of the Scott movies, if he had stayed into the 60s and 70s, what kind of movies do you think he would have made? Would he have just stayed a contemporary of Leone and Peckinpah? Is, or would he, like, he have gone Anthony Mann's journey? What, what would have happened? Uh, well, I mean, I think I've watched, revisiting these again, I come to the conclusion that it was such, it was the, it was such a, a convergence, a magical convergence and I don't think I don't know if Bud, even with bigger budgets, if he hadn't gone down, if he had tried to continue and, and work his way up, I don't know unless he had a great scripts and great people around him. But that's the thing about Hollywood. Hollywood is always going to provide you with a great writer if you are in demand. If everyone suddenly assumes you are the person, like is someone provided him with another really in demand writer? Do you? I mean, I mean, these are hypotheticals, obviously, but. I think when you look at the the American film directors who came out of World War II on Bud's level, and they're all sort of B-plus segue into A guys. John Sturgis, does the name mean anything? The Magnificent. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Great Escape. Phil Carlson, B-noirs, right? Yes. Uh, William Castle making horror pictures like House on Haunted Hill. These were the guys that came out of Bud's era, and most of them staggered by the end of the 60s. They worked. Phil Carson made Matt Helm movies with Dean Martin. Sturgis' crew started to fall apart about the mid to late 60s, but he worked. Um, Joe Kidd, you know. I mean, I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm hoping, I'm thinking that Clint think, okay, I can get Sturgis and we can get that magic, Sturgis magic again, but it didn't really. No, and, uh, and he worked, he did a, a Wayne movie. It's a cop movie, uh, McHugh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so they all sort of, they had their height by the end of the 50s, maybe into the early 60s, even Anthony Mann, who died at 60, 65, 60, 1965, 1967. So we don't know, we don't know what his career would have been, but he got into those big epics and then most of them had a good 10, 15, 20 year run. I bet Bud would have gotten some good movies, probably gone into TV. And if he wanted to keep working, he probably wouldn't have made much of interest after 1970, but he probably would have done not being funny. I grew up on these. Charlie's Angels, Starskin Hutch, Mannix, um, Cannon. He would have done these TV shows, you know. Uh, what was the Robert Blake one? Beretta. Um, all of those 1950s directors, most of them moved into TV. And only the big guys, like John Houston, who had such a checkered career, but could still make a good movie about every five years. <laughs> about every five years, you know. Uh, you know, an interesting, uh, an interesting variant if you look at Don Siegel, because again, you, uh, who would have thought Don would have gotten to the heights of Dirty Harry and, uh, uh, and uh, Escape from Alcatraz Perfect. and 
and and and again, he was he it was with the Clint Eastwood films that Don hit that high mark, because uh, you know Rough Cut, uh, Jinx, uh, you know there's some there's some kind of uh, weird clunkers in there, but uh, again, it, it it depended if Bud had uh, had matched up with somebody else. I don't know if Bud on his own. Uh, it, and and Siegel's a good exception to that rule because he's hot from the late yeah. 50s into the mid 70s. He does the shootest with Wayne, which yeah. is decent. And but almost immediately, like you said, like 78, 79, Don's done. Yeah, he goes. Peckinpah Peck is done. <laughs> In fact, Peckinpah's working on Jinx with Don Siegel. <laughs> but it's a good question, Shane. I don't know the answer, but maybe that's oh. part of the mystery of Bud Bedeker. Uh, Robert Knott, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, uh, next time I have an idea for a good Western or a good movie of this era, you're coming back on the podcast. I'd love to. Thanks for promoting the films of Bud Bedeker. Shane, I want to hear from you by email when you watch Ride Lonesome. 